and welcome to the Dear Dyslexic podcast series. I'm your host and fellow dyslexic Shay Wissell. Dear Dyslexic is a community and resource space for everyone, but in particular for young people and adults who have dyslexia. Today we're speaking with Keith, who is a professor at Swinburne University in Accounting and Finance. He has published widely in international local journals and served on a number of editorial boards. He has been able to achieve this and much more in spite of his dyslexia. Welcome to Dear Dyslexic Podcast, Keith. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. So as we've spoken about before, Dear Dyslexic is about raising awareness of the challenges that young people and adults may face in further education and in their workplace. However, it's also about celebrating and recognising the many success stories and achievements of those that have dyslexia. You've had a broad range of experience in both study and work and um, have dyslexia yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about what life was like for you growing up? Well, it was rather more complicated than the average kid. Um, My parents, in particular my mother, determined that I had some pretty serious problems in reading and writing uh, quite uh, early in school and by the age of 12 it was clear that I was seriously uh, behind other children. And at that stage other support vehicles were sort of put in place. I mean, it was in those days, I'm in my 60s now and that was half a century ago, um, not a lot was known. So the first tool that the school I was going to put in place is to give me extra spelling lessons so that I might catch up, which of course just extenuated the pain that I was suffering. Um, And honestly, at school there was, in those days, there was not a lot of sympathy. Uh, I can remember... I can even remember the name of the teacher in one of my classes who, in front of the class, used to refer to me as dum-dum. So, you know, things are better now, but that was my life at school. Mm. Um, Fortunately, I had a very sympathetic, supportive mother, and uh, for all sorts of reasons, there were a lot of incentives in my household to succeed in education. I, I have a brother, an older brother, was extraordinarily intellectually gifted and he you know so I was following along after him and so I guess the teachers were comparing me with him um, not always favorably I might add anyway he went on to Melbourne University and got an honors degree and so there was an expectation that I would go on to university too and I did I mean but you know bearing in mind that my mother at this point was reading all the books and I was listening I mean, one thing I've been blessed with is a pretty good memory. Mm. So that, um, uh, and at that point, a woman who has been extraordinarily supportive, and indeed that is part of my story. Uh, Women that read for me is a big part of my story. Well, my mum is um, very much the same. She's always been my support throughout everything that I've done, and I don't think I wouldn't have I would have got to where I am with my studies either if it hadn't have been for my mum and my family support. So that's one of the reasons why I started this because I thought if I've got all this family support, what about those that don't? Who's out there helping them and advocating for them? Yeah, well, that's. I mean, I'll, I'll truncate the story a bit, but. Anyway, I went out and worked in the workforce after graduating from Melbourne Uni, um, but had the opportunity to then go on to graduate uh, study at the University of London, 
Mm. And uh, so, of course, I had to acquire myself a girlfriend, not for the normal <laughs> reasons, but someone to read to me. Um, and, you know, and so on and so forth. And uh, then eventually I went on to a PhD, and by that stage um, I had a wife. So I, I can honestly say I've never read my PhD thesis, but my wife has. Uh, wow. I've gone on to gone on to written a number of books. Um, so I'm, I think, the only person I know that has written more books than I have read. In my adult life, I have read one book. I have written five. Wow! That's... Now, by written, I mean dictated. Yeah. I had for many years wonderful secretaries that could convert what I said into the printed word, and so I was extraordinarily gifted. And again, so women have been extraordinarily important in my life. A mother, a wife, um, and secretaries that have really contributed in a big way. Um, it's interesting that you've um, ha- that's happened to you as well, that you've been able to write all these books, but you haven't been able to read them. Yeah, well, it's, it's just... I'm, not, I'm sure I could, given enough time, but it's just painful. I yeah. mean, uh, it, it, the sort of mental torture that you wouldn't voluntarily put yourself through. But there, there was a point where I think I that might be useful to your audience to talk about when I came out as a dyslectic because I I feared the the sort of negative consequences of actually being labelled as dyslectic and there was a, a quite a powerful moment that caused me to become public about it. So, fifteen years after I graduated from the University of Melbourne and and having been reasonably successful in my life in research, the University of Melbourne chose to appoint me as a Fitzgerald Professor of the University of Melbourne when I was uh, 36. That's quite young. Mm. Um, but at that stage, I still had not made public the fact I was dyslectic. I can even remember, even that's years ago, uh, I can remember the employment form saying, did you have any... Mm-hmm. Um, medical condition or disease or disability that might inhibit you from doing the job. And I ticked no. And that that lived in my memory because I feared for the years after that that I'd be dismissed from my professorial position because I had misrepresented the truth mm. on that employment form. So, you know, I, the, the not coming out was extraordinarily burdensome. Anyway, the reason I did come out was quite simple. I was the faculty representative on the university's appeals committee for uh, students that had not progressed. And there was a student at the university who had achieved well in first year. He had then proceeded into second year and failed, I think, everything in first semester of second year. He'd been given another chance, which is the university's normal procedure, and failed again. The repeated failures caused him to be uh, served a notice of potential termination as a student. He had not responded to that in ways that made the university think it was worth continuing to offer him a place because mm. there's so many other capable students who want to get into Melbourne University. Yeah. The very last, at the very last point, he appealed again, and this is to the a special committee of the academic board of the University of Melbourne. Uh, and a person who went on to become Dean of Medicine was chairing it, I remember it well. And at the very last minute, when concluding comments were about to be made, he said that 
he couldn't read. His mother had read, read him all the books at university. His mother had become ill and was unable to fulfil that task. Mm. And so, effectively, his crutch had been kicked away from him and he had fallen. Now, I just, I just okay. turned to Jim, the chairman, and I said, Jim, this is new information. That was one of only two criteria for allowing the student back. Of course, the university allowed the student back, provided him with support facilities. But that was a defining moment for me. I said, if this kid can be public, so can I. It's really interesting that you brought that up because one of the issues that I've come across is when do you disclose? And I always look at that question on the employment form and think, do I tick it now or do I wait till I've got the job and I start talking and show that I'm actually quite competent and then disclose that I'm dyslexic? So it's always been a huge issue for me because sometimes I've disclosed quite early on and then I've been micromanaged or there's been big issues, so sometimes I haven't. So it's um, a really good point that you raised and something that we I hope we can talk about um, throughout this journey because it's such an important area and people aren't disclosing because they're too scared of the repercussions. Yeah, there, and there are, you know, there are prejudices. I mean, one of the challenges of dyslexia is it's not like you're in a wheelchair or that you've got a white stick or even you've got a hearing aid. I mean, people don't see it. So they forget about it really quickly. Yeah. So even though you disclose... Um, I mean, I can remember there was a time where I used to read out the names of the graduating students at the University of Melbourne. And, you know, I had to rote... I spent four days for each graduation ceremony rote learning the names with my secretary because I couldn't read them on the day. Mm. Um, and I, even then I mucked up some of them. So I feel, you know sad because it's such an important thing to get the names right. Fortunately, when I moved to the Australian National University in Canberra as Dean of the Faculty, the ANU, by that stage I'd you know, come out of, about being dyslectic. Um, I'm not sure the ANU knew quite what to do with a professor that couldn't read. But anyway, they made me Dean and they gave me a reader. So I would say at the beginning of the ceremony, you know, Chancellor, I still remember it, I you know, Chancellor, I present these candidates for the degree, you know, Bachelor of Actuarial Science or, you know, Master of this order, and then this person would read the names. Oh, great. And so, you know, so the ANU really was very supportive of the disability. And it worked well because, you know, the names from students in Sri Lanka or Thailand or Nepal, which I would have no chance of pronouncing, and this, this person who was actually someone expert in Asian languages, uh, was able to do it all and do it so well. What a great support mechanism, because I remember at uni trying to read out the um, nerves and the brain and everyone would laugh at me because I couldn't pronounce these big words and I would be terrified if I had to get up and read a list of students' names because I wouldn't be able to do it. It is that rope learning. So what were people like when you came out after this young boy came and said this was his issue? How did people respond? Well, I... I, I came out, you know, on campus, but it got, I don't know, I can't remember the exact story, but it got picked up by a journalist at The Age newspaper who interviewed me late in that year um, and was somewhat surprised that someone that had modest reading skills could be a professor of the University of Melbourne. 
Um, but, you know, there it was sitting in front of him. Anyway, he wrote the story, and I was sort of relieved that it didn't appear for a while. It appeared on the Saturday between uh, Christmas and New Year, so I thought, oh, it's buried, you know. <laughs> get... Turns out that's a day that lots of people do read the paper. Oh, right. <laughs> um, because they're looking for something to do, because mm. they're not at, not at work. Anyway, so th- the consequence of that was very significant. A lot of my colleagues um, reacted, and, and their reaction was sometimes helpful, sometimes not. I... I remember one colleague who essentially started to speak to me slower so that I might (laughs) understand. Uh, Another person that actually was helpful wrote to me in very large font because he thought that might be easier to communicate with. And that was actually, you know, quite thoughtful. Mm. So people react in different ways. But honestly, without the wheelchair or the white thing, they forget. Um, So... You know, that, that has been the history. People just do not know how to cope particularly well. No, and it seems they forget until something goes wrong and then they get frustrated because they think, well, why is this happening? Why are you doing this? And they say, well, this is what I told you. This yeah. is my area of difficulty. And it is that they forget. And there was a really interesting paper that was published um, by Canada that they're looking at and they've around the hidden disability and all these people that have hidden disabilities that, you know, are easily forgotten and how do we support them? And it's a huge issue for people with dyslexia. I can remember once uh, talking with one organisation about disabilities and pretty much their standard response was, well, where do we put a, need to put another ramp? Oh. I mean, that was their entire scope of disability, you know, yeah. wheelchairs and ramps. Um, so there is a long way to go for society, um, but it is rather different to when it was when I was at school. I mean, one of the other consequences of being that piece in the, the age was that I got, even though there was no contact details, but I guess, you know, a professor at the University of Melbourne wasn't hard. No. Um, I got swamped by inquiries. vast majority were mothers of children that they thought had dyslexia disproportionate number of them were boys. Um, so I set aside Thursdays um, to see you know, mums and children uh, for many months you know, into the next year um, and to try and essentially encourage them, saying well, the world of words can be conquered. Um, you know, a, a dyslectic with my reading ability can be a professor. Um, it is possible. Um, so don't think that all the options that other kids have can't be for you with the right mechanisms, with the right tenacity, uh, with the right support. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've reflected on those conversations in subsequent years and wondered really whether I was doing the right thing because, you know, if, if reading is not your comparative advantage, is university always the right thing? For some people it would be, but... I do worry whether I've encouraged more people to go to university than should have gone. No, I don't know, because my motto is very much similar to you, that we can all do it if we have the right strategies and supports in place. And I think if, I mean, for university, I went through my first degree with nothing because I hadn't been diagnosed since I was 27. And when I went to do my master's, I had a lot more support. And I think as long as you've got that diagnosis, then when you go to uni, there are a lot of supports in place. Have you found that as a lecturer that there are? Um, it's mixed. It's mixed, yeah. Yeah, there's some very good 
things around and some much less good things. Uh, it depends a bit. I mean, you can imagine the faculty I led at the ANU uh, was extraordinarily sensitive mm. to disabilities of all types. But I'm not... I mean, I've been retired now for a while. I'm not sure it's quite at the same level it was. So it's very dependent on people uh, and the ethos and value set that they have. As I say, it's a disability that's easily forgotten. So what are some of the strategies that, um, apart from having someone that's read to you, are there other things that you've helped to with your organisation or your day-to-day work um, that might be useful for our listeners that they well, might not there, have thought there of? there are several things. I mean, the world is becoming much more visual and much less text. I mean, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember when the internet didn't exist mm-hmm. <laughs> and, well, the World Wide Web and web pages and... And virtual reality and augmented reality uh, didn't exist. Um, so the world is much more visual. And, and I'm a picture thinker, not a word thinker. And that makes the world much more accessible to me. So that, I think, has been a major advance. Um, for me, the biggest thing has been e-readers, which take text and turn them into words. I mean, for example, Kindles, or the Kindle I've got, has... Uh, a setting that's under experimental where it can read books to you mm-hmm. rather than just present them in a page to read. Um, the only irritation of that is there's only two voices. So you, you might read a crime novel or, a, you know, something that's a documentary or, you know, whatever, and it's the same voice, which yeah. is slightly irritating. <laughs> in the same um, monotone? Well, yeah, same monotone. <laughs> so the sort of excitement of a thriller doesn't come quite across in the same way that it might be to other sorts of readers. So text-to-speech has been a big uh, thing for me. But also the other way around, speech-to-text. I mean, there are now so many options uh, for speech-to-text that you don't really have to have the same difficulties. So technology has been a big uh, step forward uh, for me. And and the accessibility to the technology and the, the dramatic reduction in cost of technology uh, has assisted enormously. I've been a bit so scared a scared of text-to-speech, speech-to-text. I've been a bit scared of using speech-to-text. It's the one technology I haven't really picked up on yet. I think when you've always written by hand, I've found it really hard to shift into dictation. Well, I, I wrote a 700-page book by dictating. It can be done. It just takes some practice. The one glaring error in that book, which I did pick up, was you know, I was coming to the end and I, I had to say something like, you know, in the previous X number of pages. Now, I didn't have a clue, right, because it was all dictated. But my guess was it was about 500 pages. So I say, in the previous 500 pages, well, it was actually the previous 699 <laughs> because it was on the 700th page. It was just at the end that I, that I said it. So, you know, you, you make mistakes. But, you know, it's all about progress, not perfection. You know, we're not, none of us are perfect. Um, I, I think, I regard dyslexia as a gift now. Um, I mean, even in retirement, I do work for a number of universities, both in Australia and overseas. And one of the things I do is teach research methodology. Um, now, I can walk into a PhD class in research methodology, a three-hour class, without a note and because it's all 
very clearly pictured in my head, I can deliver that class. Uh, I don't think a non-dyslectic could do that. Mm. That's fascinating. I think I've got a great memory, but sometimes short-term memory seems to be, or working memory seems to be an issue for some dyslexics. Well, I mean, everyone's different. Yeah. But as I said, I'm a picture thinker. I can, and that forces me to think very strategically and very logically. So literally, I can walk into a three-hour class without a note, and you know, and really, and my student evaluation is always pretty good. So I don't think I'm messing it up too much. <laughs> Do you think that's why you were good at maths because it's you can I, picture I, the I numbers? Think I think there's definitely a compensatory factor. I mean, I know there are people with dyscalculia. Yes, dyslexia. I think that's me. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely not one of them. I'm not. I do not have any problems with dyscalculia. Um, and, you know, people that don't have eyesight seem to hear better. So you know, maybe the world, you know, trained you to be become stronger in some different skill mm. to overcome the one where you have some disability. Um, yeah, so I am moderately quantitative and I use that uh, to my advantage. So with the... Um parents that started speaking to you after the age article. Is that how you became involved with Spelled? It is, yeah. Spelled approached me to try and um, work with them. Uh, and I, look, I, I'm, you know, I'm not part of the management of Spelled. Or, I'm just patron. Um, patrons are sort of people that sort of swing in and cut ribbons and what have you. They're, they're figureheads. They're mm. just, uh, but I do try and tell my story and I try and uh, give some sense of hope to kids that have had hope reduced or removed from their lives. Because um, there there are opportunities. Dyslexia is not a death sentence. Um, it is something that needs to be worked with. Um, but, you know, we all have comparative advantages and comparative disadvantages. This one is more easily diagnosed now. Um, and spells in particular uh, is really good at working with um, with those to to do a diagnosis and to support uh, both those with dyslexia and importantly the families. Mm, yeah, because it is it takes a whole family to support a child that then goes to school and then in uni or TAFE or whatever they want to do in their adult life, I still call my mum crying when I've had a bad day and I'm in my late 30s now. So um, it does take a family and you, that support and, and that's why the awareness is so important. Is there anything you'd like to see happen in the next five years or do you think we should be doing to help improve the awareness and to um, raise well, Australia up? made some policy decisions in respect of screening. I think that's great. I, I, uh, I think the question becomes is how effective. Yeah, you know, it's nice to be screened, uh, but if it just ends up means if you've got a mark on your forehead, uh, that's not a good outcome. Mm. It's a question of what happens after that. Yeah. What are the levels of support? What happens um, beyond the screening? Uh, that I think is the big ticket item. Mm. I mean, there's some evidence that dyslectics are particularly creative, particularly innovative. Well, you know, can we use that to the advantage um, of our community and our economy? Um, so I think there's still a long way to go in terms of understanding the comparative advantage uh, and how to, and not just the disadvantage, but the comparative advantage and working towards using that for the betterment, you know, of our community. Uh, and of our economy. So there's a long way to go there. 
Um, in terms of other policy settings, uh, you know, there's some evidence, particularly in the US, that dyslectics are, are overrepresented in the prison population. Mm, same uh, here. Amazingly. Sorry? It's the same here. I think it's 44% of our prisoners have some type of learning difficulty. Yeah. Okay. yeah. The, uh, and, and so it's a question of, you know, why is that so? Um, you know, how can we support that so that isn't a consequence? Um, I don't think that statistic is true in some countries. So, you know, what is it that we can do to support people? Because that is, in terms of life's journey, being incarcerated is you know, an extraordinarily negative event. Mm. Uh, how can we work on that to do that? I think the other thing is that, that I would like to see the debate in government in particular turned on its head and rather than doing the sort of, oh, poor me, I've got dyslexia, but saying, well, what is my comparative advantage? And so what can I bring that is particularly positive to my community and to my economy? And as I said, innovation and creativity is something that, you know, so, so if a state government or a federal government would actually put some sort of policies in place to support that and, and build on that, I think that would be a good outcome. Um, but I think we are a long way uh, to moving the debate from thinking of it as a disability and only a disability to something uh, rather more positive. There are um, three areas that I'm really hoping that once the Dyslexics Foundation gets up and running that we can address. And there is a part on my website at the moment that actually talks about um, the justice system and dyslexia and the impact of that on our community. And, you know, if we could only get these kids um, diagnosed early, we might be able to change their trajectory, not for all of them, but for some of those children that end up in the justice system, it would be nice if we could um, we could make some changes because it's the same in the UK, so it's interesting that you raise that point. Mm. There's much to be done. There is. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Is there anything else you'd like to provide our listeners with before we wrap it up? All I'd like to say is thank you for sharing your audience. Um, the notion of dyslexia and its contribution to the community is one that needs to be discussed and debated and thoroughly understood by us all. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Keith, and for sharing your story with me and our listeners. It's not always easy to speak about the challenges, but it's great that we're able to share our successes and that we can help people out there know that they can undertake higher education or whatever they want to do, go out into the workplace, and that regardless of dyslexia, we can all accomplish, achieve and succeed. So thank you so much, Keith. Okay, bye for now. 